Hello everyone and welcome to Usual Disclaimer with Eleanor Neal, a true crime podcast where we crack open some of the most notorious cases in history. Given the topics that we'll be investigating, it goes without saying that this show comes with a content warning. The details can get a bit heavy and you might find some of the themes we discuss triggering. Listener discretion is strongly advised and check the description for some resources and further information. So today's video is going to be part three, the final part of the Moore's Murders series on Ian Brady and Myra Hindley. Just for a little recap on parts one and two if you did see those. Myra Hindley met Ian Brady and they decided that they would commit the perfect crime together. The perfect crime would be to abduct and murder a child so well, leaving no evidence and no links to themselves that they would never get caught and they believed that they had done this successfully. And when it seemed as though they'd gotten away with that first murder, they decided to go out and commit three more. And these were on 12-year-old John Kilbride, 12-year-old Keith Bennett, and 10-year-old Leslie Ann Downey. All the while they were keeping souvenirs of these murders, they were taking pictures and audio recordings, and after every single murder, they would bury the bodies on Saddleworth Moor. In part two, we were also introduced to David Smith, which is Myra's brother-in-law, her sister Maureen's husband. And David Smith seems to have a lot in common with Ian Brady. They had very similar childhoods, and David Smith is considerably younger than Brady, and he really looks up to him. And Brady likes that he can easily manipulate David Smith. And that is where the last video left off. Ian Brady and Myra Hindley had just committed their fourth murder. A couple of days after the murder of Leslie Ann Downey, Hindley and Brady's next door neighbour, Patty, the little 10 year old girl, came round and noticed a newspaper on the side. And this newspaper must have had a picture of Leslie Ann Downey in it. And Patty just mentioned to Hindley and Brady that that was her friend. Not her friend, but she'd played with her before. She knew of Leslie Ann Downey. And so Hindley and Brady decided to play dumb. They pretended that they hadn't ever heard of this disappearance and they asked Patty to read this article out to them. So Patty sat and read this whole article about her missing friend to Hindley and Brady, not knowing that she was reading it to the people that had murdered her. Leslie's mother put out a £100 reward for her safe return, which is about £2,000 in today's money and she never touched Leslie's bedroom again after that and the bedroom stayed preserved for as long as they had that house. They never touched or moved anything, it was all as Leslie left it. Around a month later, Brady and Hindley planned a trip to Scotland, something that they often did because, of course, Brady was originally from Glasgow in Scotland and he just loved the kind of landscapes there. There was a lot of mountainy, hilly, moors kind of areas and this particular time they asked their next door neighbour 10 year old Patty if she wanted to come with them. Before the trip however Patty's mother decided that she didn't really want her daughter to go and so Hindley and Brady just went alone. I personally don't think that Hindley and Brady would have done anything to Patty at any point in this case. It was weird. Hindley and Brady had some children that they liked and that they you know, were nice to her, but then they had the complete other end of the spectrum. They had children that they would abuse and torture and murder. Like the neighborhood kids, they never hurt any of the children in their neighborhood. 
or Patty. Patty was like their best friend. I just find it really baffling what the kind of deciding factor between a child that they like is and what a child that they don't like is. But before long, Brady and Hindley's friendship with Patty was cut short because Brady actually caught Patty climbing over their fence once and he believed that she was trying to steal things from her garden. And he said if he caught her doing that again, he would break her neck. And from that point on, she never spoke with them again. She never went round to the house. She avoided them at all costs. Then in April of 1965, Maureen and David Smith's baby, Angela, actually passed away at the age of six months. It was very sudden. They found out that she had bronchitis that morning and she died later that afternoon. David Smith was at work when he found out, well, not when he found out that she'd passed away. He was at work and Maureen called him to come to the hospital. He came to the hospital and he was informed that his daughter had passed away and David flew into a rage. He was angry, not at anything in specific, he was just angry at the world. That the universe could give him a daughter and that he could love her so dearly and then they could just rip her from him. He was furious. He completely trashed the whole hospital room that he was in. He was throwing things, he was punching walls, he was slamming doors. And then once that kind of subsided, he was full of sorrow. He didn't stop crying. He was a mess. He was hyperventilating. He was so emotionally moved by the death of his child. Of course, as most people will be, but that's an unusual thing to hear of in this case. And then one day when he was back at home in the days following his daughter's death, he saw one of her belongings on the side and again, he flew into this rage. All he could think about were the good times. He could think about her smiling and her laughing and how he was never gonna see that again. And so he grabbed all of the things that were once hers, all of her clothes, all of her toys, everything that reminded him of her and he put it all in a suitcase. He then drove this suitcase out to a bridge and threw this suitcase off of it so that he never had to be reminded of what he lost ever again. Brady and Hindley, on the other hand, of course it wasn't their baby but it was their niece and they seemed unmoved by the whole situation. They were they didn't care. They showed some fake sympathy. Brady quickly got really annoyed at people still talking about this baby. Like it had been days, it had been weeks and people were still talking about this baby. He obviously didn't have any kind of connection to this child or understand a parental connection to a child. The funeral took place shortly after her death and Brady was the same at the funeral. He showed some fake sympathy and then for the rest of it, he was completely emotionless. And Hindley, was the same at first, but I think she was caught off guard. She wasn't expecting it to be an open coffin. And when she got up to the coffin and she saw her baby niece laying there, lifeless, her eyes started to well up, but she didn't shed a tear. But it did start to smudge her makeup a little bit under her eyes and she quickly tried to like fix it and you know, pretend like she wasn't affected by it. But David Smith and Maureen did notice that Myra started almost crying and she told them don't tell Brady. And she went to the bathroom, she fixed her makeup and then went back out to the car to see Brady. She didn't want him to know that she had emotions, especially towards children. And then that night after the funeral, Brady and Hindley invited Maureen and David on a trip to Saddleworth Moor. 
which they thought was a nice gesture. They were taking them out there to clear their head, to get them away, to distract them from the whole situation. But that is even more sick and twisted from Hindley and Brady to take a couple that are mourning their recently passed away child to the grave sites of four other children. While they were up on the moors, Myra suggested to her sister Maureen that she just get a dog rather than another child. As usual, Brady and David separated from the girls and they went and they sat on this particular piece of grass that Brady chose and they looked up at the stars and Brady just said, look up at the stars, just be silent for a bit, clear your head. And they did and they sat there for a good few minutes and then eventually went back to the van. But what David Smith didn't know at the time was that Ian Brady had taken him to that very specific spot because they were sitting on the shallow grave of John Kilbride as they were looking up at the stars. In the months following the baby's passing, the group only grew closer. However, this meant that the girls grew closer and the men grew closer. It was never really a four kind of thing. Whenever they met up, they would always split off into their pairs. And this meant that Myra's jealousy for David Smith just grew. Brady began doing even more things with David that only he and Hindley ever did. They started planning crimes together. Only little ones like petty theft and, you know, vandalism and stuff like that. But that was something that was Hindley and Brady's. David Smith was relatively poor and Planning all of these thefts and burglaries with Ian Brady gave him not only a distraction from his sorrow that he was feeling about his baby and, you know, some excitement and adrenaline in his life, but he also really needed that money. He was desperate for the money. Eventually, Ian Brady asked David Smith how he would feel about robbing a bank. It was like Ian Brady had groomed him to this point. He Obviously, if you enter into a friendship with someone and you say, would you rob a bank with me? Of course they're gonna say no because that's insane. But Ian had brought up the topic of crimes and, you know, general dark stuff so many times with David Smith that he was used to it and he was confident talking about it and he knew that Ian Brady wasn't messing about. He knew that Ian Brady was serious about robbing a bank. Brady even got David Smith to do extensive research on this one particular bank that they were planning to rob. He got him to make a list of all the employees and all their hours and when they would get particular deliveries. And one day David Smith presented Ian Brady with all of this information that he had been collecting from his research of this bank. And Ian Brady looked at it and he goes, but we're not gonna rob it. I don't think Ian Brady ever really intended on robbing a bank. Ian didn't really care for money. That was more of an initiation for David Smith so that Ian Brady could tell that he was serious and that he was willing to do the work and that he was willing to commit huge crimes with him. He now knew that he could introduce David Smith to their world. And after this point, every time Brady saw David Smith, he would increase the intensity of their conversations about crime and stuff, eventually moving on to rape and murder. And this increase in intensity didn't seem to phase David Smith at all. He seemed as though he would go along with anything at this point. And so the next time he saw David, Brady decided to confess to having murdered someone. 
However, David didn't believe him and this really angered Ian Brady. Brady was offended. It was like David didn't think he was capable of committing murder. It was like he didn't think he was capable of getting away with it. He wasn't intelligent enough. He wasn't powerful enough. And so Brady began proving or trying to prove that he had murdered someone. He was yelling, saying he had photographic proof, he had audio proof, he was saying he took David to the grave sites without him even knowing he was sat on top of one of his murder victims. Brady had previously said to Hindley after they murdered Leslie and Downey that that was it. That was the last one. He wasn't interested in doing any more. He'd already proved to himself that he could and so now he just wasn't interested. He proved to himself that he could get away with it and that was the only reason he was killing. He didn't kill because he enjoyed killing. Well, I'm sure that was a factor in it, of course, but that wasn't his sole motive and so he wasn't really interested in killing anymore. That was until he needed to prove himself. David didn't believe that he was capable of murder and Brady knew that he was and he knew that he had to prove this and so he had to commit another murder. On October 6th, 1965, Ian Brady and Myra Hindley would commit their fifth and final murder. Although something I have kept out of this story the whole time is that they had way more attempts than just five. They attempted to murder a couple of children, but we'll talk about that at the end, the survivors of the Moors murders. So anyway, on this particular day, Ian Brady and Myra Hindley drove to the local railway station because Ian Brady liked to keep a suitcase full of incriminating evidence in the lockers at the railway station. Stuff like the audio recordings and the photographs and stuff like that, notebooks that had certain things in, like he didn't want to keep that stuff around the house just in case police came around and searched it. He wanted that stuff out of the house at all times. So they went to the railway station either to get something out or to put something in and when he was there, Ian Brady tried to go to the shop to buy some wine, but when he tried to open the door, it was locked, wasn't moving. And that was when a guy standing close by shouted to him saying, oh, it's closed. Ian Brady turned to this boy and he struck up a conversation and he found out that this was 17-year-old Edward Evans. Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code PROGRAM. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Now, it's rumored that Ian Brady and Edward Evans had actually met before at a gay bar, although some people don't believe that. Some people do. Edward Evans, like I said, was a 17-year-old boy born and raised in Manchester. He had two siblings and he had a very normal life. That evening, he was actually supposed to be meeting a friend to go to a football game, but the friend never showed up. So he went to the football game alone and that was why he was in the railway station. He'd just come back from that football game alone. Brady began 
speaking with Edward and flirting with him a little bit and then he invited him back to his house and Edward said okay. They went out to the car where Myra was in the driver's seat, she was the only one that could drive and Ian Brady opened the car door to let Edward Evans in and said oh this is my sister Myra. So they got back to the house that Ian and Myra shared with Myra's grandmother who I will say right now is in the house the whole time. They all get out of the car and Brady and Edward Evans began walking towards the house and Brady turned to Myra and said go get David Smith. It was now like 11pm and Myra walked all the way to Maureen and David's house and knocked on the door. The two of them were actually in bed at the time so Myra woke them up and they came to the door and Myra, she basically just needed a reason to knock on the door. She told Maureen something about how her grandmother couldn't see her for the next couple of days but she could see her anytime next week. Honestly, not something that Maureen needed to know at 11pm. And Maureen said that, she was like, couldn't that have waited? Why did you have to come and wake me up at 11pm to tell me that? And Myra just came up with something on the spot and then she said, can David walk me back home because it's late, it's dark and I don't feel safe walking home alone. And so that was how she got David out of the house without bringing Maureen. Now from this point on, not only do we have two different version of events, like we always do, Hindley's and Brady's, but now we have David Smith's. Now Hindley and Brady say that David Smith knew exactly what was going on that night. He knew that Myra Hindley would be coming to knock on the door to come and get him to walk her home because he was about to be involved in the murders. And they say that he knew that and he was willing. Although David Smith on the other hand claims he knew absolutely nothing and that he was asleep and that he woke up and thought that Hindley just needed someone to walk her home. Anyway, on the walk home Hindley offered David Smith a bottle of wine that they had at their house and she said that she would get it as soon as he walked her home. So this is David Smith's version of events by the way. So as soon as they got to the house David says that he and Myra went into the kitchen to get these bottles of wine and then in a matter of minutes David claims he heard banging and shouting and swearing outside in the living room and so Hindley shouted to him saying you should go help him. So he bursts into the living room and there he sees Ian Brady straddling Edward Evans with an axe in his hand repeatedly hitting him. He claims he just stood there frozen, he didn't know what to do, he didn't say anything, he didn't move, he didn't he didn't do anything and he watched as Brady repeatedly hit Edward Evans with this axe and then eventually strangle him to death. After the murder took place David remembers thinking to himself that he has now got to go along with anything that Brady and Hindley want him to go along with because he now knew that Ian Brady was capable of murder and he could easily meet the same fate that Edward Evans just had. David said that Brady ordered Hindley to go into the kitchen and get some cleaning products and start cleaning the blood off the walls and off the carpet. Brady then asked David Smith to help him with the body. At first they picked him up and took him up to the bedroom and then kind of like wrapped him in some plastic. David recalls Myra Hindley being rather excited about the whole thing. She kept talking about how his eyes looked like they had fear in them and the noises from when his head hit the floor and stuff. David Smith said that it was mainly him and Myra that were doing the cleanup efforts, cleaning the carpets and stuff, while Ian Brady just kind of paraded around the house with the axe in his hand talking about how heavy the axe was and how 
brutal of a murder he just committed. David recalls looking at Myra and not being able to understand how or why she was so calm about all this. She was just picking up pieces of hair, pieces of flesh and pieces of bone from the carpet and just putting them in the bin. She wasn't disgusted by it, she wasn't, you know, it was like it was just like a wrapper off the floor that she was just throwing in the bin. And bear in mind, like I said earlier, Hindley's grandmother was asleep upstairs the whole time. In the early hours of the morning, David Smith went back home to Maureen. He set off walking and then halfway through he began running home because he just, he was so overwhelmed and he didn't know what to do and he was scared and he just wanted to get home and he just wanted to tell Maureen or call the police or anything. As soon as he got in though, he couldn't even go in and tell Maureen, he immediately ran to the bathroom and threw up because of what he'd just witnessed. So Maureen went into the bathroom and asked him if he was alright, like what was going on and everything and David Smith just breaks down and tells her everything that just happened and Maureen kind of found it a bit hard to believe at first of course it was her sister and she didn't think that her sister would be capable of that but he had to sit there and say no your sister was complicit in the whole thing she wanted to do it so they both decided that they needed to call the police but they didn't want to do it right then and there because David Smith was actually scared that maybe Hindley and Brady had followed him home and they didn't have a landline at the house at this point a lot of families didn't and so they would have to go out and go and call the police from a payphone and they didn't want to go outside they locked the doors and they stayed in for the rest of the night but obviously they couldn't sleep they couldn't really talk about anything other than the murder because it's all they could think about eventually morning came round the sun came out people started going to work and so the two of them grabbed weapons and went to a local payphone and called the police on their own sister and brother-in-law. So now before I get into like the police stuff and everything I just want to tell Brady's version of events because like I said there's three different versions of events in the whole thing. So Brady says that Hindley and David arrived at the door, they knocked on the door and he pointed them in the direction of the kitchen and shouted loud enough so that Edward Evans could hear upstairs he shouted to them, oh, the wine's in the kitchen. He then brought Edward Evans downstairs and killed him on the living room floor. And the noise was so loud that it actually woke up Myra Hindley's grandmother. And Myra actually shouted up to her at one point, don't worry, go back to bed, it's nothing. After the murder took place, Brady, Hindley and David Smith all sat down and devised a plan on how they were going to dispose of this body and continue on afterwards. Brady had actually injured his ankle in this attack and so he knew that he wouldn't be able to transport the body to and from the car and up to the moor as he normally would. And so Brady claims that David Smith suggested that they use his baby's old pram. He said that he would go home and then the next morning he would bring his now deceased baby's pram back to the house with him. They would tie the body up in a fetal position and pack it into this pram, put a blanket over it 
and then take it up onto the mall. And so that's exactly what they did. David Smith and Ian Brady both tied up this body into the fetal position using ropes and everything so that it would be ready for the next morning. Now, Hindley's version of events is that she just stayed in the kitchen the whole time. She didn't witness any of the murder. She didn't see anything. She heard it all from the next room, but she didn't go in. She didn't see anything. And what's interesting about this is that Brady actually backs her up on that. That's the first and only time he does it in this whole case. They were questioned separately and they both gave the same version of events of that night. I don't know, I find it hard to believe that Brady would lie at this point. He's implicated her in every single other murder when she was trying to say that she wasn't there. So why wouldn't he do it in this one? I don't know, I find it very confusing. But also, why would David lie? Because in David's version of events, Myra was talking about the look in Edward Evans' eyes and the sound his head made when it hit the floor. So one of them's lying. Either David Smith is lying about the things that Myra said afterwards or Brady and Hindley are both lying about where she was at the time of the murder. So anyway, the next morning, David Smith tells police everything about the night before. But not only that, he also says that he believes Ian Brady is responsible for more than just the one murder. When Ian got really mad at David for not believing that he committed more murders, David told police that Ian told him that he had buried bodies on the moors. Does that make sense? David told police that Brady took him up to the grave sites of some murdered children. So a lot of police were sent to Hindley and Brady's home. There were a lot of police cars, although only one of them was parked in front of the house. The other ones kind of stayed out of the view of like the house and the windows that Hindley and Brady could see out of. They wanted to be there just in case Hindley and Brady tried to run and they needed backup, but they also didn't want to scare Hindley and Brady. Imagine you are a serial killer. <laughs> can't believe I just said that. Imagine you're a serial killer though and you're sitting in your living room and immediately 15 police cars all pull up in front of the house. You know what they're there for. You know they've caught you and you're gonna try and run. But if it's just one police car, it could be anything. Anyway, all the other police cars stood at the end of the road anyway and one police officer went and knocked on the back door and Myra Hindley answered. He said to Hindley, oh, is your husband in? and Myra Hindley said, I don't have a husband. So this officer says, look, I'm a police officer and I have reason to believe that there is a man in this house. And Myra Hindley said, there's no man in this house. He tried asking a few more questions to Myra, but she was very dismissive, she was very blunt. And so eventually this officer just pushed past her, pushed straight into the house. And as he did, Myra said to him, he's in the other room. And so this officer walks into the living room and there he sees Ian Brady sitting on the sofa, like reclined, like he's relaxing, he's writing a letter and he doesn't even look up from this letter that he's writing and police start pouring into this house. Police had a look around the house, they looked in Myra's grandmother's bedroom, they found her grandmother and then they tried to get into Myra's bedroom but then they noticed the door was locked. They asked Myra where the key was and she said she left it at work and so the officers were like well let's go get it then and she was, she was making up all these different excuses about like how she can't remember where she put it at work and stuff. And then Ian Brady, the irritable man that he was, looked up from his letter. He was getting really annoyed about all this back and forth about this bloody key. And so he looks up and just says to Myra, you'd better go unlock it. He then turned to one of the police officers and said, 
a fight got out of hand last night, it's upstairs. It being the body of Edward Evans. And that was basically him setting up the cover story that he and Hindley would go on about that night. That was him saying to Hindley, if they ask, say it was a fight that got out of hand. So they go upstairs, Myra unlocks the door and lets police in and immediately they find the body of Edward Evans tied up in the fetal position. Police immediately arrested Ian Brady but not Myra Hindley for some reason. They just took Hindley and her grandmother to a different place while they searched the house. Ian told police that he got into an argument with Edward Evans and this argument turned into a fight and this fight just got out of hand and he ended up killing him. But Edward's body was taken for an autopsy and it was found that he had 14 different axe wounds on his body plus his cause of death was strangulation. Now that is not a fight that got out of hand. You don't go that insane on another human being in a fight gone wrong. Myra Hindley was later questioned and she was asked what happened and what went on and she simply said I don't know and I'm not saying anything. Ian's story is my story. She did however implicate David Smith in this murder a lot, <laughs> repeatedly, and she wouldn't stop. Everything was David's fault to Myra Hindley. Of course, she never liked the man, and as soon as she saw her opportunity, she was trying to get this man put away and sent away from her sister. Meanwhile, police were searching Brady and Hindley's home, all their possessions, their car, and they found some insane evidence. In Myra's car they found a brown wallet and when they opened that they found a few scraps of paper written in Ian Brady's handwriting and the things on these pieces of paper seemed to be instructions on how to get away with murder. There were things like how to clean a gun and how to dispose of a body, how to dig a deep enough hole, how to clean an axe. In the house, they found and seized a photo album. They seized the letter that Ian was writing that morning when police broke in. It was actually a letter to his boss telling him that Ian wouldn't be in that day, obviously because he planned on disposing of Edward Evans's body. They also found Ian Brady's notebook that had a lot of interesting little things in it. It had a lot of drawings of like fields, which are presumably the moors. It had strange little phrases in it like stone by the brook which was later theorised to mean the resting place of John Kilbride because it was by a little river and there was a stone nearby, like a big kind of boulder thing. But something that really alarmed police about this notebook was that Ian Brady had straight up written John Kilbride in this notebook multiple times. And why was Ian Brady, an almost 30-year-old man, writing this 12-year-old boy's name in his notebook? It's not like they knew each other before Kilbride went missing. And at this point, police were putting two and two together. They had David Smith saying that he thinks that Ian Brady is responsible for multiple murders. They have a connection between Brady and John Kilbride. They don't know what the connection is, but why would this 30-year-old man be writing this 12-year-old boy's name all over his notebook? if it didn't mean something. So police went to speak with David Smith again because it was clear that he was on the right track and they decided to talk to him a little bit more about the Edward Evans murder because that's the one that he witnessed. And at one point during this, David Smith makes a passing comment about how he believed Ian Brady picked up Edward Evans from the railway station. 
Now this was something that he hadn't mentioned before because he didn't think it to be important but police really latched onto that. So police decided it might be worth going to the railway station and speaking with staff or anyone that was there regularly that might have seen Ian Brady. So police went up to this one particular staff member and they mentioned the name Ian Brady and immediately this staff member recognised the name. They went to the logbook and realised that an Ian Brady had rented a locker in the railway station and was still currently using it and so they went and used the master key to unlock it and in this locker they found two big suitcases. So they took these suitcases back to the police station and opened them and in them they found a lot of incriminating evidence. There were more photo books, some photos of children, some photos of Brady and Hindley on the moors. There were knives, there was Myra's black wig, there was the tape recorder and the tapes from Leslie Ann Downey's murder. And immediately as soon as police played that tape recording in the office, they knew that they were listening to Ian Brady commit murder. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. At this point, police had theorized that Ian Brady and Myra Hindley were potentially responsible for or connected to eight different disappearances. Now, spoiler alert, three of them were wrong and they could never find any evidence for and no one's ever found any evidence for, so they don't think that Myra and Ian were connected to those. But the other five were the five murders that they did commit. And of course one of those was Leslie Ann Downey, a little ten-year-old girl, and as soon as they heard this tape they knew it was a little girl. And so they went and played it for Leslie Ann Downey's mother and she confirmed that the voice on that tape was her daughter. And a few pictures in those photo albums were also confirmed to have been pictures of Leslie, the ones that they were taking as they were recording that audio. Meanwhile, as all of this was going on, as police were looking for evidence for the other murders, Ian Brady was charged with the murder of Edward Evans, although Myra was still free as ever. And when she heard that Brady was charged with Edward Evans's murder, she took it upon herself to burn any evidence that she could get her hands on. She burned a full notebook, some photos, some undeveloped photos, and a list Brady said. I don't know what this list was of. She, of course, didn't manage to get to the locker in time before police found it, so she didn't manage to burn the tape recording or anything like that, but she did manage to burn a lot of things to do with Keith Bennett's murder. So pretty much all the pictures that they'd taken on top of his grave, they were gone. Literally all the notes that they'd taken, everything to do with Keith Bennett's murder was gone. So now police were piecing this whole thing together. They had a connection to Leslie Ann Downey, they had a connection to John Kilbride, they had a connection to Edward Evans, but they couldn't find a connection to Pauline Reed or Keith Bennett. And so they called back in David Smith because they remembered what he said about the Moors and how Brady had once told him that he was sat on the grave of a child. And so they brought him back in to try and 
you know, think about that a little bit more. As police were searching these photo albums, they also noticed that a lot of them were taken in big grassy areas, potentially Saddleworth Moor. And so connecting these two things together, they felt that Saddleworth Moor was a good place to look. Most of the photos seemed to have been taken in the same places. So it wasn't like they were all just random parts of the moors. Like there would be one particular like rock that was in every single picture and they'd be wearing different outfits in the pictures. So they were on different days. They seemed to be going to particular spots to take pictures on different days. And so police sent out a search party onto Saddleworth Moor to go and try and find these specific spots. The one that David Smith could describe as the one that Brady took him to and sat him on that day. They were also looking for the ones in the pictures, but also they took out the neighbourhood children, including Patty, to see if they remembered anything in particular, because Brady and Hindley would take all the neighbourhood kids to the moors, so they thought maybe they sat the kids on top of one of the graves. The search of the moors was to be a long and tedious process, but in the meantime, five days after the murder of Edward Evans, Myra Hindley was finally arrested as an accessory to murder. And this was later changed to just murder and she was charged with his murder as well. At one point before their trials, Ian somehow managed to get a handwritten letter to Myra Hindley. And in this letter, he was weirdly affectionate, something that he never really was. And people think this was to keep her sweet so that she didn't like turn against him and you know, say things that incriminate him even more, as if he wasn't incriminated enough. But in this letter, he was comparing him and Myra to a famous Nazi couple that stuck together, even when they were both being like, turned against each other, they stuck together, they never ratted each other out. He wrote in this letter that he knew that he was gonna be going to prison for a long, long time, but he thought that she would get out and he hoped that she would stay in touch and write him letters and, love him forever, signing it saying I love you in German. Finally, 10 days into the search of Saddleworth Moor, the first body was found. It was 10 year old Leslie Ann Downey. Her body was strangely well preserved in the mud. I don't know what it is about the mud on the Mars, but it perfectly preserved, almost perfectly preserved her face. And so her mother was able to identify her body visually. This was something that couldn't be done with the other bodies that were found. They all had to be identified by their clothes. Leslie Ann Downey was also found with her clothes still at her feet, including a white beaded necklace that her brother had gifted to her the morning before she died on Christmas Day. Ian Brady and Myra Hindley were both confronted with this information that 10 year old Leslie Ann Downey's body had been found and they found the suitcase that had the tape recording and pictures of Leslie Ann Downey in Ian Brady's suitcase that had Ian Brady's name on. And so they couldn't really deny that they took the pictures, but they tried. Brady said that he did take those pictures, but he didn't kill Leslie Ann Downey. His story was that two men came to his house with Leslie, this 10 year old little girl, brought her up to the bedroom and demanded that he took photographs of her. They commissioned Ian Brady to photograph child porn of this child. He says that he did it, he took the money, and then these two men took Leslie back out to their vehicle and drove away with her, and he never saw her again. But she did leave his premises 
alive. Myra, on the other hand, when she was confronted with the same information that they'd found her body and pictures and a tape recording, she just didn't say anything. She just said she wasn't involved and she didn't know anything about that. Five days after the body of Leslie Ann Downey was found, a second body was found. And this time it was 12 year old John Kilbride. And this was the body that was by the river. You know, the note in the notebook that said the stone by the brook. This time John Kilbride's mother was able to identify him based on the clothes that he was found wearing. She had actually sewn on little buttons on his t-shirt that looked like footballs. So it was very custom and she knew exactly that that was her son. And on the same day that John Kilbride's body was found, Ian Brady and Myra Hindley were both charged with the murder of Leslie and Downey. It was confirmed that the voice on the tape was Ian Brady's and that the bedroom in the pictures was Myra Hindley's, which put them both in that room at the time of her death. So now they had Myra and Ian charged with two separate murders, but they wanted to try and charge them with every single one that they thought they were guilty of, obviously. And so they moved on to John Kilbride because now they had a body on Saddleworth Moor, it looked likely that it was Ian Brady and Myra Hindley. So they found one particular picture where Myra Hindley is posing on top of John Kilbride's grave and they now know it was John Kilbride's grave because they can compare the background of the photo to where they actually found him. And in this picture she's like holding her dog puppet and she's looking at the floor. First of all, police asked her who took this photo and she said it was David Smith. And they said, are you sure it's not Ian Brady? And she said, no, Ian did sometimes take photos upon the Mars, but that one was definitely David Smith. But David Smith never took any photos on the Mars, especially not of Myra. Myra was unrelenting trying to get David Smith done for something, <laughs> anything that she could get him done for in this case. She was constantly trying to implicate him in these crimes, even though most people believe that he was not involved especially in the ones of the children, possibly in Edwards, that one's up to you, but he's not believed to have been in the first four. So Myra said that David Smith took the picture and so police asked her if she was stood on top of John Kilbride's grave in that picture and she said no. And so police said, well, why are you looking down at the ground? And Myra said that she was looking at her puppy, which I mean, no, she's not. <laughs> she's looking straight at the floor. Police didn't believe this for one second and they charged Ian Brady and Myra Hindley with the murder of John Kilbride as well. So that's three murder charges on both of them now. So before Brady and Hindley's trial, they had a lot of pre-trials. And even then, before the proper trial where they were gonna be tried for murder, people were turning up to the courthouses in their hundreds. And people were obviously outraged at these two people and they turned up and they would shout things. Every time Brady or Hindley would be transported between the car and the courthouse or the courthouse and the car, people would be screaming child murderer, child killer, monster. Multiple people, including Leslie Ann Downey's own uncle, all tried to rush the two killers. They tried to fight them or like jump them or in some cases kill them. Leslie Ann Downey's uncle said that he, if he would have got his hands on one of them, he would have killed them. And this happened so often that they actually had to start using decoys because it was getting, well, obviously dangerous, but also it was getting hard to transport Hindley and Brady anywhere. So first they would bring out a random woman or a random man with a blanket over their head and just put them in a car and send them off somewhere. And the majority of the crowd would 
dissipate and follow that car thinking it was Brady or Hindley when Hindley and Brady would be still waiting inside the courthouse for another hour after that waiting for the crowd to disappear. Meanwhile police are still trying to get a little bit more information on Myra Hindley. They had quite a slam dunk on Ian Brady but they still needed a little bit more on Myra because if she was smart enough she probably would have been able to worm her way out of charges based on the evidence so they just wanted to make sure they had it cemented in. So police decided to take Puppet, which was the dog that Ian and Myra adopted together when they first started killing. Obviously in some of the pictures Puppet is still a baby, it's still a puppy. And so they thought that if they could figure out how old exactly Puppet is right now, they'd be able to tell how long these murders had been going on for because he was pretty much newborn in these pictures and he was now however old they were going to find out. So to do this they put Puppet under general anaesthetic, they put him to sleep and then they were going to x-ray his teeth and try and figure out how old he was from that. However once he went under this general anaesthetic Puppet suffered some heart conditions and he passed away. Of course Hindley didn't believe this for one second, she thought that the police had just straight up killed her dog because she wasn't confessing and a lot of other people believe that as well. A lot of people believe that the police were trying to exercise their power and just show Myra how powerful they were and that they weren't messing around. People think they were trying to scare Myra into confessing because if they could kill a dog they could kill her and they could get away with it by saying it was a heart problem. But of course this didn't work and Myra Hindley stayed true to her story till the day she died. That woman never changed her story once. In April of 1966, Ian Brady and Myra Hindley went on trial for the murders of Leslie Ann Downey, Edward Evans and John Kilbride. The media surprisingly focused mostly on Myra. They seemed to forget that this was a duo, you know, like a killing pair and a lot of the articles focused mainly on Myra. They didn't forget that Ian was there but there was a lot less on Ian than there was on Myra. The media focused on her appearance. She had this bright blonde hair but her roots were coming in. They were focusing on the fact that she was 20 years old but she looked much older. Like very superficial things like this woman just murdered children and you care about her hair. Like you should be talking about her crimes and showing what an evil person she is, not what an ugly person she is. But I think a lot of the media coverage of Myra Hindley stemmed from the fact that she was a woman and you don't expect women to commit crimes like this, especially not against children. Women are meant to be innately maternal and nurturing and care for children. It's in our hormones, like that's science. And to see a woman that can do such things to a child it's one thing for a man to do them, it's disgusting both ways, but for a woman who is supposed to have that maternal instinct in her. I think the media was just very surprised, this was one of the first female serial killers they'd heard of. The newspapers also loved the kind of Bonnie and Clyde aspect of this couple, like the romance and the danger and the fact that they weren't turning on each other and the fact that they still had each other's back and they were both defending each other still in court. It was like a sick twisted love story and people were interested in it. Anyway, after two hours of deliberation the jury came back and found Ian Brady guilty of three counts of murder. However, they found Myra Hindley guilty of only two counts of murder. 
Leslie Ann Downey and Edward Evans. Whereas with John Kilbride they didn't want to find her guilty of murder because they weren't too sure, so instead they found her guilty of being an accessory to murder in that case. The two of them were both sentenced to life in prison and it just so happened that the death penalty was abolished literally months before they were sentenced. So had they been caught just a few months earlier and sentenced just a few months earlier, they probably would have been sentenced to death. However, this is not how Ian Brady and Myra Hindley wanted this to go. Their plan was that Ian Brady was gonna take most of the fall for this and he was gonna get the mega long prison sentence. They knew that he was gonna be behind bars for the rest of his life, but they were gonna try and get Myra Hindley the lowest possible sentence that they could because Ian Brady thought, well, there's no point both of us being locked up for life. You might as well go out and live your life and just make sure you send me letters so that I can live vicariously through you. And so to be fair, I think that's why Hindley always said that she was at the van because she was trying to get a lesser sentence. Makes sense. But of course now it was looking like the two of them were gonna just be locked up for the rest of their lives, as they should be. So their prison sentences began and they were put into normal prisons, which you can already tell there's gonna be drama. You've probably heard that there's like a hierarchy in prisons and right at the bottom of that hierarchy are people that commit crimes against children, rapists, you know, child rapists, child murderers. Those are the worst of the worst and everyone above you in that pyramid is gonna attack you. And that's exactly what they did to Myra Hindley and Ian Brady. Ian Brady was attacked so viciously that he was put into solitary confinement for the rest of his life. As for Myra Hindley, she was also attacked a lot and she begged and pleaded for them to put her in solitary confinement for the rest of her life, but they said no. I don't actually know why they said no, but instead she was given a personal bodyguard, which we probably paid a lot for. The two of them requested to meet with each other multiple times while they were in prison. Of course, every single request was denied, but Ian Brady was prepared to put himself through hell to see Myra Hindley again. He would go on hunger strike, he would make himself ill, he would do all sorts of things to show them that he was serious, that he wanted to see Myra Hindley. He had to be tube fed at points, he was hospitalised because he was really making himself ill. Meanwhile, Myra Hindley pretty much forgot about Ian Brady. But I mean, we'll get back to that in a second. David Smith, you're probably wondering what happened to him. He was actually granted immunity from any prison sentence. Yes, he cleaned up Edward Evans's murder. Some people think he had a part in it, but you know. He was an accessory to murder in that case, whether you believe he had a part in the murder or not. He helped to clean up and he admits that. And police said, you won't get any prison time for that. You will get immunity if you give a full witness testimony against Ian Brady and Myra Hindley. But the public didn't like this one bit. This man wasn't gonna get a single day, a single hour in prison. But to everyone else, he was like the third Moore's murderer. Everyone believed that he was responsible for something. Like I said, Myra tried to implicate him in every single one of the murders. All the children's murders, Edward Evans's murder, 
And the public believed her. And the public hated David Smith for it. They would shout things at him in the street, throw things at him, vandalise his house. He couldn't get a job because nowhere wanted to employ the third Moore's murderer. And what made this so much worse for David Smith was when it came out that he had a deal with a newspaper for £20 a week to give them details of his experiences with Ian Brady and Myra Hindley. He actually used some of that money to go on holiday to France and people were disgusted at that. And like I said, David Smith found it very hard to find a job after that. He fell into poverty, the whole family did. He and Maureen actually had a second child which obviously the first one passed away. And because he wasn't getting paid, he couldn't afford to support his wife or his child. And like I said, people would attack him in the street. And one day this guy came up to him and at this point, David Smith had started carrying a weapon because it was a regular occurrence that people would attack him on the street. And this man came up and attacked him and David Smith turned around and stabbed him. So David Smith was jailed for three years for that. And while he was in jail, Maureen divorced him because she was sick of this life. She felt like he was making it worse for himself and you know she just didn't want their child to grow up around this and at this point they actually had two children when he went into prison and so she left and she took these two children however they still grew up really affected by their father's reputation. They fell into drugs, they fell into crime and they never really had a fair chance at life because they were never given a fair reputation. They were not a reflection of their father, but the public saw them as that. Maureen eventually passed away at age 34 due to a brain hemorrhage, which is so young. And later in life, David Smith actually was arrested for attempted murder of his own father. But it's not how it sounds. His father actually had terminal cancer and he wanted David Smith to poison him and it wasn't attempted murder it was successful but I think the courts kind of took into consideration the context that he was helping his terminally ill father just to pass on peacefully and so he didn't get too long in prison for that but he did get some prison time and around this same time like I said Myra Hindley completely forgot about Ian Brady in prison and she begins an affair with a prison guard. This woman was named Patricia Cairns and Patricia claims that she didn't have a clue who Myra Hindley was. Everyone knows who Myra Hindley is, especially at the time because her face was all over the news. But anyway, Patricia fell in love with Myra Hindley and Myra Hindley fell in love with Patricia Cairns and together they came up with a plan to break Myra Hindley out of prison. However, this plan was foiled when one of Patricia Cairns' colleagues noticed her acting weirdly, they reported it, and the plan was somehow found out, whether she'd like written something down or whatever, the plan was found out. Anyway, Patricia Cairns ended up serving six years in prison for even, you know, attempting this plan. And this whole time that Myra Hindley had been with another woman, Ian Brady had been making himself sick to see Myra Hindley. Hunger strikes, he was on feeding tubes, he was making himself ill, he was like making himself throw up and all this and then he found out that she was cheating on him from a letter that she wrote him herself. She told him in a letter that she was cheating on him and he went insane. He no longer wanted to protect this woman. Up until now he had said that Hindley didn't have a part in any of the murders and that it was just all him but now he was ready to tell the truth. 
For the past few years, a journalist had been coming to visit Ian Brady in prison. This journalist was the only visitor that Ian Brady ever had in prison. And this guy kept drilling him for information and Ian Brady just was not giving anything up. But after he read this letter and found out that Myra Hindley had cheated on him, the next time this journalist came around, he told him a completely different story. Ian Brady confessed to the remaining two murders of Pauline Reed and Keith Bennett, and in turn, he implicated Myra Hindley in those. He also told this journalist that Myra Hindley was involved in every single one of the murders. And at this point, Myra didn't really have anything to lose by just confessing to the murders. She was already going to be in prison for life. She might not have been in prison for life if she didn't try to escape, but that added a few years onto her sentence. So now it was looking like she was in prison for life. If she tried to deny being involved in these murders, it would be more hassle than it's worth because it's not going to take any time off her sentence. And it's only just going to mean that she has to go to court every week or whatever. So she just admitted to the murders of Pauline Reed and Keith Bennett. Myra even went so far as to help police find the body of 16 year old Pauline Reed. It took about 100 days to search the whole of Saddleworth Moor but eventually they found it. Unfortunately the same can't be said for Keith Bennett because Myra Hindley and Ian Brady have both kept very tight-lipped about where they buried Keith Bennett on the Moors and they took that secret to their graves and I don't think we'll ever find out where his body is located. Winnie Bennett, Keith Bennett's mother, passed away in 2012 and she said that it was her dying wish to know where her son was just to have recovered her son's body. However, of course, Ian Brady and Myra Hindley did not care. But that wasn't the end of the Moors murders' reign of terror. They actually had a few survivors, which we'll talk about in a second. Myra Hindley passed away aged 60 in prison on November 15th, 2002 from pneumonia as a result of her smoking habit. Ian Brady stuck around a lot longer and eventually passed away aged 79 in hospital from lung disease. Brady was ill for a long, long time before he eventually passed away. He was on feeding tubes and oxygen tubes and all sorts and he said that he wanted to die. He kept trying to go on hunger strike and then they'd put the feeding tube back in and he just kept trying to end his life prematurely. And one of his dying wishes was that those suitcases that contained all that evidence, all the pictures, notebooks, the tape recording, everything, he said that he wanted all of that stuff locked away forever and he didn't want anyone else to ever touch that stuff and he actually got his wish. I really cannot believe that the courts would honour such a dying wish from a child murderer, but here we are. No one's ever allowed to go in those suitcases again. Keith Bennett's brother has appealed so many times to just look through these suitcases and then they can lock them back up, but no. The courts won't let him. He really wants to because he feels like there might possibly be a clue in those suitcases, in those scrapbooks, in those notepads that might lead to finding Keith Bennett's body. The only remaining Moore's murders victim whose body has not been recovered and potentially never will be. Now for those survivors that I keep mentioning. The first one that we're going to talk about is Tommy Rattigan and he was seven years old 
at the time that he met Myra Hindley and Ian Brady. One day he was alone in the park on the swing and it was already dark at this point when a woman approached him, Myra Hindley approached him. And Tommy remembers Myra smelling very nice. He recognised the smell, it was like perfume mixed with hairspray. It reminded him of his older sisters. He also remembered she had very kind eyes. She approached him and just said like, are you okay? He obviously looked pretty poor, he was from a poor family and his clothes and the way that he looked showed that. And Myra played really sympathetic. She was saying like, oh you poor thing, do you want to come back to my house and I'll make Make you some bread and jam and Tommy Rattigan took the chance with open arms he was like yes let's go and so he went to the van with Myra and as they were walking out of the park he noticed a man standing further away from them and he began walking alongside him and Myra and Myra introduced this man as her boyfriend. So they get to the house and Myra lets Tommy Rattigan sit in the living room at the kind of dining table that they've got and Ian Brady and Myra Hindley go into the kitchen. Now Brady stays in there the whole time that Tommy is in the house but Myra Hindley keeps popping in and popping out. Tommy recalls hearing kind of an argument in the kitchen but no one was raising their voice it just seemed a little bit heated like they were kind of snapping at each other and then Hindley comes out of the kitchen with the bread and jam in her hand and Tommy Rattigan recalls this being the moment that he knew something was wrong. Myra Hindley slams this plate of bread and jam down on the table in front of him and he recalls looking up at her and her eyes were no longer kind they were very sinister. So Myra goes back into the kitchen, continues talking to Ian Brady and Tommy recalls hearing Brady shout wait. So Myra was probably trying to rush the killing. Tommy remembered looking down at this bread and jam and noticing that there was no margarine on it. It was literally just jam on bread which is not really how you do it. It's not proper. That's that's rushed jam on bread. And Tommy just remembered thinking like if she was doing this to be kind, if she was making me bread and jam to be kind, she would have done it properly. But this seemed as though she'd rushed it. Like she was only making it because she had to. And Tommy says it was at that point that his fight or flight response kicked in and he noticed a window on the other wall and he saw that as his getaway. He ran to the window and he undid the latch and tried to like lift the window. So it was like one of those slidey uppy windows. I don't know if I'll be able to post a picture because I don't know what's typing on Google images for that. But it was like one of those windows that you slide up and he recalls it getting stuck at about four inches. So there's about that much of a gap and not big enough for him to fit through anywhere and he remembers panicking. He felt like he was going to faint but he just kept trying to push this window up and eventually it swung all the way up and slammed right on the top and it was then that Myra and Ian heard the noise in the living room and they burst through the door. Myra said he's getting away and they ran to the window to go and grab him and Tommy dives straight out of the window and Myra manages to grab hold of his ankles. Luckily he had enough momentum and enough weight outside of the window at that point that he just kind of fell and her hands just kind of slipped. He slipped out of her grasp and he was able to run away. Tommy Rattigan says that he has survivor's guilt from this experience because this took place just a week before John Kilbride was abducted and murdered and he always feels like if he'd have just died that night, maybe John Kilbride wouldn't have been killed. It's so sad. Imagine thinking, if I'd have just died, then maybe that little boy would still be alive. 
The second person that claims to be a survivor of the Moors murders was a man named David Gray. And of course he wasn't a man at the time, he was a little boy and he was in a sweet shop when he believes Ian Brady approached him and pretended to be a police officer. Ian Brady said, come with me, I need to ask you a few questions. And this boy was clever. He asked to see some kind of identification, like proof that he was a police officer. Now, most young kids would just be scared out of their skin and just go with it and just go with this police officer, but not David Gray. He asked for identification and when Ian Brady didn't have any to give him, he just laughed. And then David Gray kind of assessed the situation and realised that maybe this was dangerous and so he stepped back. And when he did, he stepped back into the shop door. Now, when certain shop doors open, they've got like a little bell to let the shop owner know that someone's come in and he set off that little bell, did David Gray. And immediately Myra Hindley came out from the other side of the shop and just said, come on Ian, let's go. Obviously at this point they'd drawn too much attention to themselves, there was noise and it was clear that there were two adults talking to a child. If they were to abduct him now, they would have easily been traced back to it. And that has been the Mars murders case. Thank you so much for listening to Usual Disclaimer. At this point, I just want to say that if you've been affected by any of the topics we discussed today, please check the description where we've left some helpful resources. If you want to hear more cases like this one, make sure to follow Usual Disclaimer on your podcast app so that you get notifications when we post new episodes. And if you really enjoyed, I'd love it if you could leave a rating and a review too. Usual Disclaimer with Eleanor Neal is an Audio Boom Studios production. See you next time.